Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 8th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Peru's president is impeached and arrested after attempting to dissolve Congress. Raphael Warnock defeats Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate runoff. Washington says it neither encouraged or enabled Ukraine to strike Russian territory. Germany arrests 25 people accused of plotting a coup. Argentina's vice president is sentenced to six years in prison for corruption. Turkey reportedly sets a two-week deadline for the Syrian Democratic Forces to withdraw from northern Syria. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments on congressional district maps. Twitter fires its general counsel over possible internal document suppression. China loosens more COVID restrictions. And the EU agrees that airlines should have to pay more to pollute. In our top story, Peruvian President Castillo has been detained and impeached after an attempt to dissolve Congress. And here are the facts as agreed upon by El Pais, Merco Press, Washington Post, Bloomberg, Guardian, and CNN. Peru's National Police confirmed that the country's ousted President Pedro Castillo was arrested on Wednesday after he announced the dissolution of Congress in a televised address to the nation hours before he was set to face his third impeachment vote. Local media reported that Castillo was approached by police officers in downtown Lima as he was leaving government headquarters. In the meantime, the Peruvian single-chamber legislature voted 101-6 to to declare the presidency vacant, impeaching Castillo for, quote, moral incapacity, after he said he would rule by decree until new elections for a constituent assembly could be held. Castillo's attempt to send Congress home for nine months, write a new constitution, and impose a curfew received harsh criticism from the military, the Constitutional Tribunal, and his own cabinet, with several ministers reportedly quitting shortly after his announcement. His vice president, Dina Boluarte, who described his move as a coup attempt, was quickly sworn in as the new president, becoming the first female head of state in Peru's history. The Castillo administration was entangled in chaos since its inauguration, with several ministers sacked or having resigned in little over a year, while the former president himself has faced several investigations into alleged corruption schemes. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story from Peru. On this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. For this story, we have a left narrative and a right narrative. Teleser has provided us with a left narrative on this story. The impeachment process against Castillo was a clear and deceitful attempt to break with the Peruvian democratic order. But Castillo's actions are also unacceptable. He was not a trustworthy leader, and now this has become clearer than ever. And we counter that with a right narrative coming from El American. Castillo had long indicated that he wanted to abolish checks and balances to his power and polarize society, so Peru shouldn't have expected anything other than corruption scandals, violence, instability, and disaster from his administration. Fortunately, parliamentary efforts brought this nightmare to an end today. From time to time on this show, we have a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. For this story, they're stating that there's a 50% chance that Peru's GDP per capita will be 20,400 in 2030. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Turning our attention to U.S. midterms where Raphael Warnack has won the Georgia Senate runoff. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, Politico, NPR Online News, Associated Press, and New York Times. On Tuesday, Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock defeated Republican challenger and former NFL player Herschel Walker in the Georgia Senate runoff, leaving U.S. President Biden's party with a 51-49 majority in the upper chamber of Congress. While Warnock finished narrowly ahead of Walker in the November midterms, neither reached the majority needed, which led to this week's one-in-one runoff. Walker's loss continues the unsuccessful trend of Trump-endorsed candidates. According to AP News, Warnock won 51.35% of the vote with just over approximately 1.8 million votes out of the more than 3.5 million votes cast in the runoff. This was down from 3.9 million ballots cast in November. Warnock claimed, quote, It is my honor to utter the foremost powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. In defeat, Walker stated, I'm not going to make any excuses now because we put up one heck of a fight. Warnock won a runoff election to be senator for a partial term in 2021, becoming the first black person from Georgia to do so and only the 11th black senator out of over 2,000 total in U.S. history. The election was the last outstanding seat of the 2022 election cycle. As we shed some light on the two spins that have emerged from this story, we begin with a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. After an exhaustive election campaign season in Georgia, Warnock should now be considered the leader of a new generation and part of a Democratic renaissance in the Southeast. Nationally, Democrats fared better than expected, and Warnock's re-election is a potential opportunity to push a center-left agenda throughout all parts of the U.S. And you know if there's a Democratic narrative, it's always going to be followed up by a Republican narrative. And this time, it's brought to us by Washington Examiner. Warnock's win capped a disappointing midterm election season and a major blow to Republicans. The expected red wave in November didn't materialize, with Warnock managing to misleadingly project a centrist image, despite the reality of his liberal voting record and skirt past Walker at the finish line. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 75% chance that the GOP will control the Senate after the 2024 elections, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. As we continue our coverage in Ukraine, day 287, and Antony Blinken says that Washington neither encouraged nor enabled Ukraine to strike within Russia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Tuesday that Washington has neither encouraged nor enabled Ukraine to strike targets inside Russia after three attacks were recorded at Russian airfields in the past week. Russia has repeatedly warned the U.S. and its allies not to cross, quote, red lines by supplying long-range weapons to Ukraine. This has so far been heeded by Western nations to avoid major escalation. Nonetheless, Blinken said he's determined to ensure Ukrainians have, quote, the equipment that they need to defend themselves, to defend their territory, to defend their freedom. In response to the attacks, which are believed to have been carried out with drones, 
Russian President Vladimir Putin met with permanent members of his Security Council on Tuesday. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said additional measures were adopted to improve internal security. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, a Russian military truck collided with a minibus in the Donetsk region, reportedly killing 16 people and injuring three others who were later taken to a hospital. It wasn't immediately clear what proportion of the deaths came from civilians or the military. In addition, separatist officials from the Donetsk People's Republic said that four civilians were killed and 20 more were injured in Ukrainian attacks on the region over the past day. Ukrainian officials said that in Russian attacks, at least six civilians were killed and five injured in the Donetsk city of Kurakov and two people were killed in Kherson. One civilian was also reported injured in each of Dnipropetrovsk and Sumy. Eric, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We have an anti-Russian narrative from Newsbud. Attacks on airfields deep inside Russian territory will have struck a major psychological blow to the country's officials. Now Moscow's leaders will have to think long and hard about how to protect its long-range bombers from future attacks. And a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Putin has already met with Russia's Security Council about the attacks, and new measures are being adopted to further secure Russian airfields. The situation is under control. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. There's a 33% chance that there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Germany has arrested 25 people accused of plotting a coup. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, France 24, Al Jazeera, and DW. On Wednesday, German police arrested 25 people for allegedly plotting to overthrow the government. The detained include former Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD, member of the Bundestag, the country's parliament, Brigitte Balsack-Winkman, and members of the Reichsberger movement. Terming the raids across 11 of Germany's 16 states against the so-called Reich Citizens Movement and anti-terrorism operation, Justice Minister Marco Buschmann said that the suspects may have planned an armed attack on state institutions. Prosecutors said that 22 German nationals were detained on suspicion of, quote, membership in a terrorist organization, unquote, while the three others, including a Russian citizen, were arrested for allegedly supporting its activities. While the Russian national, identified as Vitalia B, allegedly helped the organization to establish contacts with Russia, German investigators found no evidence that Russia reacted positively to their request. According to the German Attorney General Peter Frank, the group had formed around 71-year-old minor aristocrat Heinrich XIII PR at the end of November 2021 to install him as the new leader of Germany and overthrow a so-called deep state through military means and violence. An investigation into plans to kidnap Health Minister Karl Leuterbach by another group related to the Reichsberger movement, which rejects the legality of the Federal Republic of Germany, triggered this operation that reportedly covered 130 properties belonging to 52 suspects. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the three spins, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from RT. It's absurd to believe that the detained, most of them in their 60s or even 70s, would be able to storm the parliament and overthrow the government. This operation was carried out with the sole purpose of creating a fervor in the media 
to divert the German people's attention from the competence of the Schultz administration and the nation's catastrophic economic problems, including its energy crisis. And there's also a pro-establishment narrative provided by BBC News. The Reichsberger movement used to be mocked, but security forces have been increasingly concerned about the group's radicalization as conspiracy theories have permeated German society since the outbreak of the pandemic. As this far-right scene was responsible for over 1,000 extremist criminal acts last year and death threats to politicians, this operation was necessary to prevent the situation from spiraling out of control. And Metaculus is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. It says that there's a 50% chance that Germany will elect a new chancellor by October of 2026. You know, I heard a rumor that this Reichsberger movement actually started in a retirement home and that they were just protesting that the fact that their schnitzels were not any good. You know, if you don't have the right sauerkraut to go with it, you, you got to do your schnitzel right or it could lead uh, to your country being overthrown. It really could. Absolutely. News coming out of Argentina as the vice president has been sentenced to six years on corruption charges. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Buenos Aires Times, BBC News, NBC, Merco Press, and Guardian. On Tuesday, Argentina's Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner was sentenced to six years in prison and disqualified from holding public office after a federal court in Buenos Aires found her guilty of corruption during her earlier terms as president. The three-judge panel declared Fernandez de Kirchner guilty of, quote, fraudulent administration to the detriment of the state for public work contracts in her stronghold province of Santa Cruz from 2007 to 2015, but rejected the charge that she ran a criminal organization. Lazaro Baez, the owner of a construction firm and reportedly the main beneficiary of the scheme, was also sentenced to six years in jail following a 12-year prison term handed to him last year on money laundering charges. Fernandez de Kirchner will almost certainly appeal the decision which could take years to resolve. As sitting VP, she's immune from arrest. Following the verdict, Fernandez de Kirchner announced that she wouldn't be running for any office in next year's elections, a move that would leave her without immunity after December 10, 2023. A survey conducted in November by the polling firm Zuban Cordoba y Asiado showed that almost two-thirds of the respondents had a negative image of Fernandez de Kirchner, who has long been accused of corruption by her detractors. Meanwhile, she denies any wrongdoing and says the charges are politically motivated. Thank you, Eric. We have a left narrative provided by Teleser. This is a political witch hunt and disgrace to Argentina. Economic powers on the right are uniting to take down their political opponents in an unacceptable form of thuggery. The people of Argentina must stand behind their vice president and condemn this political persecution. And the right narrative is coming from Economist. While Fernandez de Kirchner and her supporters may claim foul play from the court, there's plenty of evidence that during the Kirchner rule, their family friend Baez was favored in public works contracts. Yet, it's unlikely that she will be arrested in the coming years as this case could reach Argentina's Supreme Court, and a seat in Congress would be enough to grant her immunity. Turkey has reportedly set a deadline for the SDF withdrawal from northern Syria. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Axios, and Washington Post. Al Jazeera reported on Wednesday that according to a Turkish source, 
Ankara has urged Moscow and Washington to press the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, to withdraw within two weeks from Manbai, Tal Rafat, and Kobane in northern Syria. Turkey has reportedly warned that failure to meet the deadline, which won't be extended, will result in a military operation against the U.S.-backed SDF. The SDF is largely comprised of the Kurdish People's Protection Units, or YPG, a group Ankara accuses of being the Syrian branch of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which it, along with the EU and the U.S., considers a terrorist organization. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby stated on Wednesday that the U.S. recognizes the Turkish right to self-defense but opposes military operations in northern Syria as the best way to tackle security threats, citing risks to civilians, troops, and personnel. In addition, according to two U.S. sources familiar with the issue who spoke to Axios, CIA Director Bill Burns gave his Turkish counterpart a strong message opposing strikes against the Kurdish in northern Syria after one of them hit a target close to U.S. troops. This comes a day after Pentagon officials said that recently restricted full-ground operations alongside Kurdish partners in northern Syria will be resumed shortly, a move that could fuel tensions with NATO ally Turkey. Adam, thank you for the facts, and we do have a few spins to talk about, beginning with an establishment critical narrative. It's coming from Daily Sabah. Turkey has been forced to conduct its own counterterrorism operations in northern Syria and northern Iraq because the U.S. has continuously disregarded its NATO allies' security concerns. In order to fight the IS in the region, Washington has provided military training and support to the PKK and its Syrian affiliate, YPG, despite designating it as a terrorist organization. Turkey has no choice but to escalate action to protect itself. And Washington Post has a pro-establishment narrative. Turkey's obsession with Kurdish terrorism has dangerously escalated the situation in northern Syria, putting American forces at risk while also destabilizing the coalition's fragile control over IS. The SDF has no connection with the militant militia known as PKK and has been working with the U.S. and coalition forces for years. This isn't what the U.S. should expect from an ally and sets a dangerous precedent for other alliances. And the Metaculous Prediction community is chiming in with their nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 93% chance that Turkey will be a NATO member continuously until January 1st, 2025. Turning our attention back to the United States as the Supreme Court hears a North Carolina redistricting case. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Forbes, Independent, and Washington Post. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Moore v. Harper, a North Carolina redistricting case about who at the state level has the power to regulate federal elections. The case, brought forward by GOP lawmakers, asks the court to endorse what's known as the, quote, independent state legislature, ISL theory, which claims that the Constitution delegates authority to regulate the time, places, and manner of a state's federal election to its lawmakers. Moore v. Harper originates from a previous court ruling that threw out what it claimed were unconstitutional congressional maps drawn by the GOP-led legislature in 2021 after North Carolina was granted a 14th congressional seat. The court-drawn map was used in this year's midterm elections, 
leading to a 7-7 split between Democrats and Republicans in the state's delegation. While Republican lawmakers assert the validity of the ISL theory, the Supreme Court has never ruled that the Constitution's acknowledgement of the legislature's part in the process supersedes the government mechanism by which state constitutions and state courts constrain them. The court's ruling, expected in June, is said to have the potential to affect how boundaries are drawn in the U.S. electoral process and pave the way for nationwide partisan gerrymandering. Thank you, Eric. MSNBC has written out a Democratic narrative for the story. This case is the biggest threat to free and fair elections in a long time. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of ISL theory, state legislators would control everything including the appointment of presidential electors, a process central to Trump's unsuccessful plan to overturn the 2020 elections. There's still hope, though, because even prominent conservatives have argued against granting state lawmakers this type of power. The Supreme Court should rule to maintain the status quo. And The Federalist gives us a Republican narrative for this story. As stated in the Constitution, Management of elections should fall to the people who regularly have to face the electorate, not some court that can't be held accountable. Despite the opposition's concern, the ISL theory doesn't give state lawmakers unfettered power over elections because Congress can't keep them in check. This case will test whether the Supreme Court is willing to live up to the Constitution's promise. Twitter has fired their lawyer over possible internal document suppression. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, Business Insider, Daily Mail, and Fox News. Twitter CEO Elon Musk on Tuesday fired James Baker, the company's general counsel, over allegations that he vetted internal documents that were part of the platform's, quote, Twitter files, released before they were handed over to journalists for dissemination. The Twitter files are documents and communications showing how Twitter handled content moderation prior to Musk's takeover in October, including its decision to suppress stories about Hunter Biden's laptop in the fall of 2020. The files are part of a stated effort by Musk to be transparent about decisions made by prior management. The documents were shared with journalists Matt Tybee and Barry Weiss. Tybee began releasing them on Friday, but after a delay, he revealed that he had learned Baker had vetted the documents without the knowledge of new management. While announcing the firing, Musk tweeted, quote, In light of concerns about Baker's possible role in suppression of information important to the public dialogue, he was exited from Twitter today. Some released files showed how Baker played a role in suppressing the laptop story. In one email, he wrote, I support the conclusion that we need more facts to assist whether the materials were hacked. At this stage, however, it's reasonable for us to assume that they may have been and that caution is warranted. Baker was previously general counsel at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he was involved in several Russian investigations, including the probe into possible interference by Moscow in the 2016 presidential election. Thank you, Adam. We have several spins coming from this story, beginning with a Republican narrative. It's being provided by The Federalist. Scandal seems to follow Baker wherever he works. While at the FBI, he was prominent during the crooked attempt to establish ties between Russia and then-candidate Trump during the 2016 election. Now, we find out he was involved in suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story, which would have benefited Trump if it was more widely released. Baker had to go. 
and MSNBC has provided us with a democratic narrative. What's been released so far of the Twitter files has been less than scandalous, only revealing that Twitter had numerous healthy debates over the content moderation and fielded requests from both sides of the political aisles. Nothing tying President Biden to the nefarious deals done by Hunter has been uncovered. If Musk wanted Baker gone, fine, but it had nothing to do with Republicans' onslaught of conspiracy theories. And this story has also spawned a cynical narrative coming from Daily Mail. Elon Musk has orchestrated this distraction to take attention away from how hate speech has proliferated on Twitter since his takeover. We shouldn't let him get away from facing tough questions on the rising volume of anger, hate, and anti-Semitism on the platform, and how Twitter's let it happen. So there. So there. Did you read the Twitter files? No, didn't read the Twitter files. Yeah, neither did I. Did you watch the X-Files? <laughs> Turning our attention to China as they loosen the COVID quarantine and testing rules. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, France 24, CNN, and Daily Mail. China announced on Wednesday sweeping changes to its zero-COVID policy, entailing a nationwide loosening of restrictions amid unprecedented protests. Per China's National Health Commission, this includes people with mild symptoms now being allowed to quarantine at home. Over the past few days, Chinese authorities have begun loosening some of the world's most stringent COVID curbs to varying degrees and softening their tone on the threat of the virus. On Tuesday, residents in Beijing were allowed back into parks, supermarkets, offices and airports without a negative COVID test. The new rules mean that a green health code will no longer be required to enter public spaces, except for nursing houses, medical institutions, and schools. The NHC also announced that mass PCR testing will be limited to schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and high-risk work units. Lockdowns are only allowed in high-risk areas and, even then, are recommended to be promptly lifted if no new cases are found for five consecutive days, the new guidelines said. Further, authorities should ensure the normal functioning of society and basic medical services. The NHC also said that people traveling across provinces no longer need to provide a 48-hour test result and don't need to test upon arrival. China will also step up its vaccination of the elderly, which has been seen as one of the key obstacles to relaxing the zero-COVID policy. The NHC's new COVID rules came hours after the government released new data showing the crippling economic impacts of zero-COVID. Imports and exports were down in November to levels not seen since early 2020. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. People's Daily has provided us with a pro-establishment narrative. Localities across China are dynamically using new information to craft a science-based and targeted response to the COVID pandemic. Leaders and scientists are collaborating to ensure the optimal measures that limit restrictions on citizens while also prioritizing the health and safety of vulnerable populations within China. This has led to easing restrictions with focused care as society returns to normal. And The Guardian gives us an establishment-critical narrative. It's clear that many people in China are tired of the increasingly ineffective zero-COVID strategy, and the world is bracing for the worst. While the protests have put pressure on Beijing, the PRC's use of ineffective non-mRNA vaccines could make for a national and even global health crisis. 
China is now stuck in a volatile position to overwhelm its extremely fragile healthcare system or continue to face public outcry over draconian policies. All right, Eric, I think we've got a first here with the Metaculous Prediction community. It seems they all agree that China will end COVID zero by May 8th, 2023. No percentage. It's, it's, it's unanimous. Yeah. It's unanimous. Our last story comes out of the European Union, where proposed legislation has asked the airlines to pay more to pollute. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Indian Express, Market Research Telecast, Guardian, and you're active. On Wednesday, the European Union reached an agreement over a law that will see the price paid by airlines for emitting polluting CO2 emissions increase. The legislation is intended to pressure the sector towards more sustainable reforms. Currently, airlines that run flights inside Europe are compelled to submit permits for carbon dioxide emissions, but most of those are being granted for free by the EU. The European Parliament would reportedly phase out those free licenses by 2026. Brussels is set in 2026 to assess if these processes, which govern flights within the EU, are effectively keeping air travel on track to reach zero emissions by 2050. If not, the standards may apply to all outbound flights from the EU. Fares for air travel consumers jumped in the last 12 months due to increasing fuel prices. The Director General of the International Air Transport Association has called for a more rapid move toward sustainable aviation fuel. According to Joe Dardeen of the nonprofit organization Transport and Environment, quote, average European families will continue to pay much more for their CO2 emissions than long-distance frequent travelers. We are about to lose another decade of climate inaction. The new law, if formally implemented by the EU, will allow airlines to deduct 100% of the cost of e-fuels and 70% of advanced biofuels, but it is yet to go to the European Parliament and Council for final approval. The law would also, in an unprecedented move, require airlines to report the release of harmful gases, including nitrogen oxides, sulfur dioxide, and soot particles. Those were the facts, and we have two spins, beginning with a right narrative coming from Spectator. This kind of big state intervention is not the way to tackle climate change. Many Europeans are facing a cost-of-living crisis, and net-zero agendas across Europe have resulted in politicians unwilling to make the trade-offs required between supply, affordability, and decarbonization to meet abstract but public relations-friendly sustainability goals. The private sector can help solve this issue if given the chance with better deregulation. And a left narrative is provided by Guardian. Private finance won't make the planet greener. Only better regulation can, with the use of massive public investment and a shift away from the chronically entrenched strategies of government greenwashing. We can hold politicians more directly accountable and address the climate crisis. Eric, what's your solution for airline pollution? I think we should call Elon Musk and get some of those electric planes in the air. I was thinking the exact same thing, but where are you going to find an extension cord long enough? You know, you're right. You are That's absolutely gonna be tough. Cr- It is going to be tough. If anyone can do it, Elon, Elon can. can. Elon. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 8th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.